0: Welcome to the MBA Insider Podcast. My name is Al D. I'm the host of the MBA Insider Podcast and the founder of MBAschool.com. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Christina Wallace, who is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, as well as a Harvard Business School alum. Christina, after she graduated from HBS, uh, entered into the management consulting realm before taking a pivot and pursuing a path towards entrepreneurship, where she took on many different roles before writing a book and then ending back up uh, working at Harvard Business School as a senior lecturer focusing on entrepreneurship. Christina is actually writing a book right now. And as she is preparing for that, I got the chance to talk to her just about her journey to HBS, her time in business school. And then we riffed a little bit about her experience after HBS and how she came up with this idea of the life and career portfolio. I think this is a great topic to help MBAs in particular think more expansively about career development. And I so enjoyed this conversation with Christina, and I know you will too. All right. So Christina Wallace, thank you so much for being here today. So I always love starting every conversation with a warm-up question. And so my warm-up question to you is, if you can think back, what was your first job and what was the most important lesson you learned from that experience?
1: Wow. Well, first job is... Likely babysitting, as it is for a lot of young women. But my first real job, if we want to call it that, my summer between junior and senior years of high school, I was the office assistant at the community music school at Michigan State University, where I had been a student studying piano, cello, voice, uh, all, all of the things for over a decade. And suddenly I had to I had to be a grown up for the summer and f- file paperwork and answer phone calls and 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 do all of those administrative tasks. And I think honestly, my biggest learning that summer was probably how to deal with angry customers.
0: <laughs> Say more about that
1: <laughs> i I think everyone so the summer after that, I worked as a waitress. and the summer after that i I sold shoes for Sears. And I feel like every young person at some point should work food service, retail, and customer service. Those are just such useful opportunities to A, learn how not to be a jerk later in life. Just helpful to to see what that feels like to be on the receiving end of it. But B... I think it teaches you a lot of really useful skills, how to de-escalate situations, how to empathize with someone who might not be the most warm and empathetic person sure. uh, that you want to bond with, and how to problem solve. Yeah. Right? And that it's within your control a lot of the times yeah. to to solve customer problems and to take that ownership and and to solve it even if you're 16.
0: Yeah. So my first job was working at a golf course, and in and so I very much align and agree with you around being able to work in a service kind of job. It, mm-hmm. I actually really enjoyed it, but it was a really, I think, good heat check for me to recognize that, particularly in that role, uh, it's not always about you and what you want to do or what you have to do. <laughs> And at least at that age, it was a really good eye opener for me to understand that sure, like I'm important, but only within the context of <laughs> something bigger than just myself. And it I think it yes. got me to think a little bit beyond myself, at least for a little bit, which I, is not a terrible lesson to learn at a at a young age. No.
1: I think the other huge takeaway, which this did not apply to babysitting, in which you get paid under the table, was when I got that first paycheck and saw yeah. how much goes to taxes. <laughs> and I was like, yes. wait, I had budgeted my entire right. spending money off of right. what I thought I was going to be earning on an hourly rate, which was like six twenty-five that right. summer. And then I realized that I didn't get to keep all of that. And right. that suddenly made me much more interested in understanding where my taxes went and how government worked. Yeah. So larger, larger uh, implications there as well.
0: Yeah. So also a good lesson in civics as well as personal finance (laughs) for that matter.
1: (laughs) Exactly.
0: Okay. So let's, uh, let's fast forward then uh, some, some years, Uh, think back to perhaps maybe what you were doing prior to going to business school and Mm -hmm. why did you choose to leave what you were doing at the time to take the GMAT study and go to business school? You know, what were you doing and what was the impetus for you to want to pursue an MBA?
1: So I was working at the Metropolitan Opera in an arts management role. I had double majored in math and theater. I'd been a musician my entire life and was really sort of convinced when I decided not to do a PhD in math, I thought my path was going to be move to New York and become a Broadway director or, you know, an opera director, something, something in that world. And I got to the Met. And I, I started the same day as Peter Gelb, who was the brand new at the time, this is 2006, the new general manager. And it was supposed to be this, this huge, new, innovative time for the Metropolitan Opera, which is the pinnacle of nonprofit performing arts in the United States and one of the top organizations in the world. Like, if this is your world, this is the Olympics, right? And I spent two years there really frustrated with how little they were willing to change. There is a long story that is very fun to tell over drinks in another context. But the short version is when I started, they made it very clear that I was to do exactly as I was told to do. No changes. Don't even ask to make changes. You know, they They talked to my references. The references said, I'd like to come in and change things. And they're like, we don't want that. We literally don't want that. We just switched from typewriters to computers in 2003. And this is only, it's only been three years in this new regime. Do not change a thing. And within this organization that was not growing, right? Opera as an industry, not growing. The Met as a company, not growing. I didn't realize how important it was that the the industry or the company you're in is growing if you want opportunities to grow. And so, you know, they said, you're not going to get promoted until someone dies or retires. And I looked up above me and everyone was like moderately healthy in their 40s and 50s. And I was like, well, this could be a very long time if, if I stay. And so I, I realized I, I needed to, to try something else. And I didn't know anything about business. I didn't know anything about business school. My mother was a secretary and my grandfather built cars for General Motors on the assembly line. Like this is not the world that I come from, but I was, I was close enough to it in New York. And I could see that a lot of the people who had jo- the jobs I thought I wanted, which was to run a big arts organization, had business backgrounds and many of them had MBAs. And so a bit of a, on a whim, I'm going to be honest, I decided to go to business school, not knowing a single MBA. And so I signed up to take the GMAT. I I laugh when you say studied for the GMAT. I didn't study. I didn't realize you were supposed to study. This was not, again, like this was a bit of a whim. I'm just lucky. I'm really good at standardized tests. (laughs) And so like, did exceptionally well on the GMAT and threw my application into a bunch of schools. And I got lucky and Harvard. Harvard took a chance on me. So that's how I ended up going to business school.
0: Well, so you made it to Harvard, Harvard Mm -hmm. Business School, which is a phenomenal business school. I'd be curious to know what was that experience like? And is there one or two particular experiences that were really memorable to you in terms of your own professional growth and journey?
1: Yeah, so I started three weeks before Lehman Brothers collapsed oh, wow. in 2008. Yeah, It was an exceptional time to be an MBA student anywhere, but certainly at Harvard Business School where I think we graduated many of the architects of the financial crisis. So we had a fair amount of of self-reflection at that time of of maybe how we could have contributed to where we were. But it also made for a very entrepreneurial time at HBS because there were no jobs. I mean, no one was hiring in 2009 and a number of people who had internships and had full-time jobs had them revoked. And so it became a pivotal moment for HBS where entrepreneurship was a very tiny slice of the student body here before then. And... By virtue of no other options, it became a very large focus. And from there on, my class and and onward, entrepreneurship has becoming a a much larger uh, and more significant focus both on campus while you're a student and off when you graduate and what you build after. I think we have some recent stats that say 50% of HBS grads within 10 years of graduating have have become an entrepreneur in some dimension or another which is pretty astonishing. So that that was the big kind of macro world that I came to business school in. And uh, I think my two most, maybe most memorable moments, the first was pre, pre Lehman Brothers collapse. This is like second day on campus. My section decided that we were going to have, one of the ways we would bond was we would do like a a fake stock market, right? We would all get like a a pretend $100,000 to invest in the stock market. It would be like a chance for those of us who didn't know anything about it to learn. And, and for those who, who fancied themselves to be good at this, to kind of show, show that off. And uh, quite literally, I came to business school, not knowing the difference between a stock and a bond. So, so there was a, a steep learning curve for me, but I was like, you know what, I, I could probably learn this. Like how hard could it possibly be? And then, you know, the whole world collapsed and like, Two two people from my section were you know billionaires posts fake on paper obviously uh, pretend billionaires but still like they read the room and they did well uh, during that crash and the rest of us obviously lost our shirts and that was the moment that I was like you know what index funds I should just invest in index funds like there are smarter people than me who are paying attention to this and I am never going to beat the market so that was my first learning. My second most memorable was in my second year. I had Clay Christensen for building and uh, sustaining, BSSE, building and sustaining successful enterprises. And he, I mean, he was just the mensch that everyone makes him out to be. He was just an astonishing man. And he had a big health crisis. This was 2009. He had cancer popping up toward the end of the semester. And he thought it would be the last time he was teaching. And so he gave this incredible final class on all the ways that you could apply what he'd been teaching us all semester about business to our lives. And he was like, honestly, this matters more (laughs) than what I've just been teaching you. And I came out of that class thinking that was the most important 80 minutes of my entire MBA education. And I got to hear that because of a lottery. Uh, Like, I got to be one of 80 students in this class because of a lottery. And that doesn't seem fair. (laughs) And so I asked him if he would give that talk to our entire graduating class. All 900 of us deserved to hear that. And so he was so generous. He did. And that ended up turning into the HBR article, How Will You Measure Your Life, which then became his best-selling book, How Will You Measure Your Life? And I think, you know, he, he ended up having a number of, of health scares beyond that one. He sort of had nine lives uh, in there for about a decade, but, but he had such an impact on the business world with his theory of disruption and all of his work on, on innovation. And I just feel like he's probably going to have a bigger impact in the long run on the happiness and the sustainability of people's lives of the people who read that book. I think it's going to personally, I think it's going to outweigh the impact he's had on the business world, which is saying something. So those are probably my two uh, most memorable moments from my MBA,
0: yeah, two different but really impactful moments for for sure. <laughs> the so it's funny. i I've never met Clayton Christensen but, the, as you're replaying the story back to me, and for those who aren't familiar, the late professor Clayton Christensen, father of disruptive innovation, written many books, famed professor. But everything that I, what you say in that story, everything I've ever heard about him pretty much tracks to what you just articulated. And I've heard yeah. some someone have a personal experience like that, a student uh, and a worker. I've heard so many different things like that. He really was a larger than life uh, kind of yeah. individual. Also, I,
1: literally, he was yeah. like six. Well, foot he nine. was
0: right. He, he was he was very tall. He was very tall, a very tall man, um, and also had very tall kid or some very tall kids. Yes, all of five of them. Yes.
1: exceedingly tall.
0: <laughs> so literally a larger than life individual. But uh, for me, at least, the though no, I never met him, the one. So two things. Number one, and I'm giving away my secrets here, but uh, <laughs> whenever I have someone who I know who graduates from business school, one of my go-to gifts is how well you measure your life. That is mm-hmm. a book I always send them. But one of the things that I think he said, I believe in a maybe that article, but in a different one was this idea of how he believes that management, if practiced well, is the one of the most noblest professions that one could have. And he yeah. goes on to tell the story about how when he was a manager, he envisioned a worker, um, I forget her name, but- Her going home after a really great day and Mm -hmm. going home to her family and talking about how excited she was about her day and everything she did at work and how much joy that would give to her family. And then he also Mm -hmm. ran the scenario in his head about how if that same worker um, had a bad day and it was a result of him or anything that he might have done and how that she would show up at home to the rest of her family, to her community, Mm -hmm. et cetera. And I think it really, uh, to me at least, underscored the aspirational vision of what good management and leadership can and should do and yeah. that's something that has always kind of stuck with me in my own pursuits of being a manager and leader and now that I get to teach some of that stuff something that mm-hmm. I try to pass on to other people and so I didn't know him but he absolutely had an impact on me just through through that article and through that story
1: oh I love hearing that no it's it's so true that that what we do has you know outsized impact on so many people that we don't interact right. with over the course of the day and that doing it well is a noble profession. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so you graduate from HBS. What happens next? You know, what did you do <laughs> afterwards or at least that first job? I know you did a number of different things, but perhaps that very first job post-business school, what did you do and what was that experience like?
1: My very first job post-business school, I went to BCG, <laughs> like many HBS students. No, I, I did my summer in consulting at BCG. I went back and checked my full-time offer. And Part of it was because I came from such a non-traditional background, right? Theater major, worked in opera. I, I was smart, but I didn't have experience. I didn't have the, the practical skills. And so I wanted that opportunity to see a lot of the things that we'd studied in the classroom, but up close and personal in a variety of contexts. And consulting is a, an amazing way to do that. I also wanted the hard skills. I had never made a slide before. I had never built an Excel model before, right? Like I just, I had some gaps that I needed to fill. And consulting is one of the few industries left that really invests in a lot of professional development for their team early and often. So I I went to BCG. I had a great, very long year. And I say that, I say that with a smile. I loved everyone I met there. They are possibly the smartest and most interesting and kindest people that I would ever work with. And also I am really not a fit for consulting. <laughs> I am an entrepreneur. I am a creative. I am an artist. You might not be surprised to know that like, that is not the type of person who thrives in a client service consulting model. I just, I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't get excited about the slides and the, the let's take the 27 passes on the deck at two in the morning in order to, right? Like it just, it didn't get me out of bed in the morning. So I stayed my year in no small part because I had already spent the signing bonus while I was still in business school, traveling and climbing Kilimanjaro. And so I, I didn't want to pay that back. But I used that year to, to work on a couple of entrepreneurial ideas. And I had that time to squirrel away every penny they gave me. I, I lived on my pre-MBA nonprofit budget in order to to really make use of that year and, uh, and worked through a number of ideas with a couple of different potential co-founders so that at the end of that year, I was ready to go and start my own company.
0: I'd be curious to know how you found time to play around <laughs> with these entrepreneurial <laughs> ventures. I mean, it is, as you mentioned, uh, do it. Doing doing version V twenty seven at two AM takes a toll on you after a while. How did you either tactically find the time or strategically and philosophically perhaps even find the desire
1: to, yeah. Yeah, to do <laughs> that? So a couple of of tactical options. Number one was I was single. And so I had no one that I owed my time to, single and childless. So I could use every minute that I wasn't working to be thinking about myself. (laughs) It's a very, very selfish way of existence, but it worked. And then the other was, you know, my first two projects were very travel heavy and very, uh, very long hours. And so by the time I finished the second project, I was able to kind of use those chits to call in and say, I kind of want a work-life balance project now. And so they were able to put me on one that didn't require a ton of travel and that was a I laugh at this now, but it was a really modest 55 hours a week, right? It, like it wasn't even close to the 80, 90 hours that I was doing in the other projects. That bought me a lot of space and time by the third project that I could uh, that I could really do quite a bit of uh, like boots on the ground validation. And the, the huge benefit of consulting, I had a ton of airline miles and a ton of hotel points that I could use for my startup. So I could travel... And talk to investors and talk to potential customers and spend time with my co-founder all on the dime of, you know, the clients that helped me earn those points. So there was no work-life balance that year. It was all work in one dimension or another, but it was a short period of time. And I knew what I was driving toward, which was to have that focus by the time I hit one year. And so it wasn't hard to have that, that pace because it was a sprint,
0: Part of why I ask the question is because I, it's a question that I, I get a lot. And for listeners mm-hmm. of this podcast, they, they know that I toiled away doing a side hustle on a nights and weekends job while doing a full-time job before going all in on it after about eight years. And so mm-hmm. I, I will get the question a lot of times, well, how did you find time to do that? And similarly, as you just articulated, I think for me, the thing that always stuck out was that I always had a genuine curiosity about something that I wanted to itch on and mm-hmm. explore. And so naturally, that led to when I did get downtime, to the ability to explore that right Mm -hmm. and and that was a privilege for me in the sense that when I wasn't working there was something I had in mind that I wanted to put my time and energy into Mm -hmm. and try to unearth and try to explore and try to experiment with so I I won't say it was easy per se but it it was top of mind for me which that Mm -hmm. by it alone just gave me naturally just an extension to want to explore it. And then Mm -hmm. the other aspect I think in your similar scenario too is that because I was working at a company that had a lot of resources and also just had a lot of really smart people, there were naturally a lot of adjacent overlaps in terms of Mm -hmm. the things I was doing each and every day were either skills or experiences that I could then use and put into practice on the thing that I was exploring at the time. And so uh, I'm not going to say it was easy per se, but I do think that mm. being able to open my eyes a little bit to the things that I really wanted to do and then figuring out, okay, well, how can I just maybe just slot this over into the things I do after work? When I do have this, some of that free time, that was something that always helped me.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating because there's, there's a recent study that came out just a few months ago, I think, on how... Uh, there's evidence that people's side hustles and, and, you know, whether you monetize that or not, right, you can call it a hobby, you can call it a side business, whatever that thing is, actually gives additional benefits to your day job. That whether it is, you know, it, it, sometimes it's just, I, I get to exercise a different part of my brain, a different muscle, a different interest, and that fills me up so that I show back up the next day full. And ready to go or whether it's i'm learning new skills and that means i can bring those to work and this is a different context or it's i'm meeting new networks i'm getting exposed to new ideas and just that that fresh spark gives me creativity and and inspiration when i'm coming into my job and so there's there's quite a bit of evidence that yeah. managers should actually be really excited Yep. when they have employees that have side hustles rather than concerned that that might be distracting them.
0: Well, it's funny you say that because I remember when I went to my manager, I had to get it cleared when I was wanted to write my book, just mm-hmm. go through a formal process as well as to talk to my actual manager. And I remember telling her and her going back to me, oh, so, and I was working in marketing at the time. She's like, oh, great. So you're going to be a better storyteller. Well, whenever you're done with this, could you just teach the rest of us how to get better at this. And <laughs> I felt like such a great sigh of relief that I was working yeah. for someone at the time who understood that, you know, I was still going to get my shit done, but that mm-hmm. whatever I was doing outside of my work life, A, was, you know, for me to explore, but B, that there could be some value and benefit to mm-hmm. uh, in the workplace in the work I was doing but also for the rest of my team and so I was very grateful to that particular manager who I think kind of had that mentality and mindset that you were suggesting from yeah. some of that uh, conclusions from from that research that you that you mentioned so Absolutely I want to dig in further. So I know you were kind of curious about this entrepreneurial itch. So Mm -hmm. what did you manifest that into? What were you exploring? And then how did that eventually lead to you stepping outside of BCG to go pursue this path to entrepreneurship?
1: Yeah. So where we ended up, my actually one of my section mates from my first year at HBS, Alex Nelson, she and I had gone down a number of different paths, looking at ideas that might be interesting. And we landed on one that we ended up starting a company around called Quincy Apparel. And it was effectively, now this is back in 2011, 2010, 2011. So uh, this might not seem novel now, but uh, 11 years ago, the idea that women should have a brand brand of clothes that fit their bodies and wasn't hideous <laughs> and that you could wear to work and be professional but still stylish. This was the rise of Bonobos, Warby Parker had just come out, right? This the, the direct-to-consumer venture-backed model was just really starting to take off. And this notion that you could build a really good business for a niche customer solving a real problem and giving them more value through you know cutting out the middleman was starting to take off. So we raised a, a tiny little bit of friends and family money and that was enough to get us to quit our jobs and go all in. And then we raised a little bit more of angel money and then we raised a little bit more of VC money, right? It was just it was little fits and starts as we were we were learning this industry. I mean, we were literally designing, manufacturing and retailing clothes out of New York City. We worked out of the garment district and she and I neither of us had experience in the actual making of clothes. I'd studied costume design. My grandmother had been a seamstress and I I knew how to make individual garments, but I didn't know how to make them at scale. The whole manufacturing of it was new to me. And she had an operations and an engineering and a retailing background, but the direct to consumer piece was new. So we had a lot that we had to learn. And, you know, over the next kind of year and a half, 18, 20 months, we learned a lot and and we had a great brand for a little while. We were up and running, we had some loyal customers and a really fun time and then the whole thing fell apart. <laughs> we we ran out of money before we had reached the milestones that would allow us to bring in new investors. And there's a lot of a lot of drama and a great story behind that too for another time. But from that experience we had we had such a great kind of learning curve on those two years that we both uh, have frequently argued that we've accelerated our careers 5-10 years in, in those two very compressed years of of fun and also very painful learning that set us both up for for really interesting trajectories. I stayed in the entrepreneurship world. She ended up going back into more of a larger company world, but in a product management and innovation and building new businesses function. And so it ended up really informing where both of us took our careers.
0: So there's probably a lot to unpack there, like you said, for another episode, <laughs> but maybe where we can drill into was or is what that led you to, because you're still very much in the realm of entrepreneurship, just perhaps mm-hmm. looking at it through a A different lens. So after that, what did you end up doing? And yeah, what are you doing now?
1: Yeah. So I spent the next 10 years in a variety of roles within the startup ecosystem in New York City. So after Quincy, I joined a Boston-based startup called Startup Institute as uh, the kind of founding director of their New York City campus. It was a a boot camp really focused on not the founders of startups, but all of the early employees. So for folks who wanted to make a pivot into startup world, how do you adapt your skill set? How do you build a new network? How do you really understand how to take that marketing or that product development or that sales experience, but make it relevant in early stage startups? So built that program in New York, helped them scale to Chicago, Berlin, and London, and then I was itching to build something of my own again. So I stepped away and through a little bit of a, a exploration of what I cared about, what I wanted to focus on, which at the time was how do we get more women in tech, which is how do we get more girls in STEM, landed on a fantastic relationship with a, a foundation that wanted to fund a program for teaching girls how to code and had seven and a half million dollars earmarked for it and the asterisk was i had to build it inside the american museum of natural history which is a fascinating place to build a startup I mean, literal dinosaurs roaming the halls. It's, it was an amazing few years of getting to really rethink how could I leverage the trust, the footprint, the assets that the museum had and that the parents of New York City had for this institution and, and be able to build a program for girls in computer science using scientific data sets, natural sciences, inquiry-based learning at the high school level and uh, just really proud of what we built with that. And I think it makes an interesting template that could be applied to teaching computer science through the lens of fashion, through music, through any industry that applies coding to, to how they do what they do. And then I I moved on from the museum and joined a, a startup at the time, a pretty small early stage startup called Bionic as their head of growth and got to spend four incredible years with them where we helped build Startup ecosystems inside of Fortune 500 companies. So, how do you take that skill set, that mindset of entrepreneurship and venture capital, right? It's the how do you invest in new things as much as how do you build new things and take that to Nike? and General Mills and Citibank and GE, may they rest in peace, uh, and all of these larger companies and, and had a great, great ride with them building this company and getting to write a book about it. That was my first book, New to Big, which was like, how do you adapt uh, these, these tools and these mindsets for larger companies? And then coming out of that, I got married and I had a baby. And I said, I can't do the 80 hours a week, 100,000 miles on a plane every year. I can't do that pace anymore. I'm at a stage of my life that I need to rebalance my portfolio, right? If you're thinking about, about your life like a portfolio, just like you do a financial portfolio, I needed a, a different mix. And so I, I stepped away from Bionic. And I went on a bit of a roadshow with with my colleagues and my network, and said, you know, how can I stay in the startup ecosystem and be, you know, put to use all of this that I've learned the hard way in many cases, but not be a founder or an executive? And that's how I landed at Harvard Business School as a professor and got to uh, got to come back full circle to be able to teach entrepreneurship and run startup boot camp for MBA students.
0: So if I didn't know you and if I didn't know any of your work and I just simply took a look at your resume or the list of things, I might be curious about trying to <laughs> find how, the, where the through line was. But yeah. that's also why I don't think you should just look at someone's resume to try to pick that out. You should go and talk to them and learn a little bit more about them. But mm. now that I know you, and now that I know some of the things that you've done, to me at least, this all makes sense as you're explaining mm-hmm. it to me. And I think part of that might actually be due to the word you just said to that word was portfolio. And mm-hmm. I know and that you have really embraced this idea of the portfolio career or viewing your life as a portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I actually, part of how I got reconnected with your work again was through the article that was in Times and Charter about the career of the future needs a portfolio approach. And so mm-hmm. I'd love to actually have you talk about what is a portfolio career or a portfolio approach and i think you could maybe even use yourself as an example for really bringing this to to life
1: sure so i have i have been building what i now call a portfolio life since i can remember like this is this is the only model that ever made sense to me but i didn't have the language for it until i studied portfolio theory as part of my mba but the notion of a portfolio life it sort of rests on I would call it three major ideas. The first is that you, your identity, is not defined by any one job, or industry, or opportunity, or any moment in time. You are so much bigger than that. Two, diversification of, <clears throat> diversification of income streams, of industries, It will help you mitigate uncertainty and navigate the ever-present change that we are all facing right now. And three, your needs will change. (laughs) You will go through different seasons or different chapters of life. And as a result, it is not just appropriate, but uh, necessary for you to rebalance your portfolio, to change the mix of things you do to accommodate the different needs, the different responsibilities that you might have at any given time. That's how I frame a portfolio life. And, and I use that as an example, um, it, it, I, The book is coming out in in April of the same title, and I use a lot of case studies in the book of people who have creative jobs as part of their portfolio. I think artists, I would call the extreme users of this model because they've had to, right? Uh, When I was an actress and a theater director before I even entered the business world, I could make a living in that world, but I had to be flexible as to the different things that I might take. I might do one gig as an actress and another gig hanging lights as part of their uh their tech team and then the next gig I was directing and the next gig um I was uh you know doing dramaturgy research for the production. So I've always had that like I can do a lot of things and I'm I want to do a lot of things. I think that's fulfilling and and really interesting to be able to stretch in a lot of different ways. But that that comes from a place of saying I'm not just any one thing. And I think a lot of people recognize this, that, you know, when when you define yourself by your job, you're taking a lot of risk (laughs) because that job, that that industry might disappear. That job might go away through no fault of your own. And the higher you go, I think the more people start feeling like, I, I kept hearing this phrase in my interviews for the book of like the phantom limb. Right. They feel like they had cut pieces of themselves off in order to fit in this model or like they had to hide elements of who they were because it didn't fit the mold. And there wasn't a single person that I talked to who ever said, you know what, this is exactly who I am and all I've ever wanted to be. And I'm no more and no less. And like, this fits me perfectly. Right. Everyone kind of felt like, well, you know, there was this other thing I loved too, but but this is how i'm I have to be serious now. and and so i I put that aside for a little bit. and i I just I think that's so sad to hear, right? that there are all these other elements that make us who we are and that make us more interesting than our resume. And that if you recognize that you are greater than your job, that takes away the power. That you are giving someone else to steal your identity from you if that job disappears. So, so that's where this comes from. And, and it, I think it gives you the freedom to assemble a mix of paid, unpaid streams, activities, hobbies, investments of your time, and then remix, rebalance whenever it makes sense. And I think that permission to say this isn't forever, it's just for a season. it takes it takes the pressure down quite a bit, I think uh, in in a lot of ways. It's not being flighty. it's not flip flopping, right? like, I think for a while, my mother probably thought I was pretty flighty. Like every two years, she's like, wait, you're doing what again? But I think there came a moment where she's like, oh, I see how the pieces fit together. Right. And sometimes you can't see until you're looking in reverse. I think Steve Jobs once uh, made that comment that all makes sense in in retrospect. But you just have to have the, the confidence in yourself that it will make sense at some point, even if you don't have that sexy through line just yet.
0: There are so many directions I could take this in, but (laughs) I want to start with a few. So the, what was that phrase again? The limb, the cutting off the- cutting. Oh yeah,
1: the the phantom limb. The phantom
0: limb. So one of the things (laughs) I think about is just the other analogy, which I think is similar, square peg and round hole, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think about the context of the workplace and quote unquote career success or however you want to say it, if we can agree on the principle that There are millions of people in the workplace who all have diverse interests and desires. It would also be reasonable to agree that there should be millions of different paths that they could then pursue in order to Mm -hmm. achieve that level of success. But Mm -hmm. for so long, we have traditionally defaulted to a couple of very narrow lanes around getting promoted to a management role or being Mm -hmm. an executive or whatever (laughs) it is. Right. And so something like portfolio, a portfolio life only makes sense to me if only in that it gives. A more expansive view to more people about how they can define success on their own terms. You know, if you generally agree with the principle that people have their own interests and own unique desires about what success is, and so I guess yeah. I'll, I'll start. I'll start with that. That's that's my first <laughs> reaction to what you're suggesting with portfolio life.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think it absolutely uh, underlines this idea that there are multiple on ramps and off ramps. Yes and so then the onus becomes this is maybe the the hard part about all of this yeah. is that managers yes. <laughs> and companies then have to think more creatively about how do i evaluate lived experiences competencies that may not show up in the the you know credentials yeah. that i normally evaluate when i'm looking for someone and to be creative about right. what those paths might look like internally, right? Sure. That there's going to be a multiplicity of paths rather than uh, the handful that you normally would have. It, it's harder for hiring. It's harder for management and for kind of that upward career trajectory. But but I think my anecdotal evidence, and, and I'm looking for research that supports my uh, completely yeah. biased opinion, it will lead to more fulfilled workers, yeah. better output, longer tenure they're going to you're going to be loyal to a manager who is willing to see you as a three-dimensional person and right. really wants to find opportunities to not just empower but also take advantage of those skills and and those uh, dimensions right like yeah. i think you're going to see uh, a larger impact of of happy and and fulfilled you know work relationships when you acknowledge that people are complex <laughs> Yeah. individuals
0: <laughs> yeah yeah well i i can give an anecdotal example i remember very early on in my career when we had i i started my career in consulting and so we had a a, a deliverable we were pitching to a client or it was the final readout to the uh, the steerco and the person who was supposed to present ended up getting pink eye and so mm. they just were not in a position to really present and they were a couple levels above me but the partner in the project said hey do you want to present because well you don't really have a choice because we have no one else and i said <laughs> I said, sure, you know I'll do it. And little did he know, I was actually pretty comfortable with presenting. And quite frankly, it actually worked out to his advantage because, as you well know, the folks on the, the lowest levels of the hierarchy are often closest to the data and the yeah. information. And so yeah. in a lot of ways, it actually benefited him that I presented because he wasn't as close to it as I was. And it ended yeah. up going really well. And so at the end of that project, you know, he said something to me where he said, hey, you know, one thing that you should do next time you join a project is make sure you let them know that you're a really good presenter. And that way they will find more ways to help you use that skill in the work that you do. And so Mm -hmm. that was something that I did. And I remember on the next project, I worked for a manager who I was fortunate in that I didn't have to say that. She just kind of asked me and just said, hey, what are things that you're really exceptional at? And is is there a way we can try to put them to work here? And Mm -hmm. what ended up happening was, is that she got me an opportunity to do that. But then she also recommended that, I start to lead some trainings internally because I was so good at mm-hmm. presenting, and that was the seed for me where I could then saw like, oh, I'm actually really good at this, and mm-hmm. it allowed me to then go in other places, both in the workplace and outside of that, to look for more of those opportunities. And so yeah. it's not really, uh, again, connecting the dots in hindsight, as Steve Jobs would mm-hmm. say, it's not a surprise to me that today I'm a podcast host and I get on <laughs> stage and speak, right? Because it was right. right there in front of me, but it wasn't right. until that partner said to me, hey. You're really good at this. Why don't mm-hmm. you try to find more ways to incorporate this? And so, yeah, that's just. one. I 12%. love that
1: story for two reasons. Number one, many times the things that we are exceptional at, we don't Even recognize yeah, we because they're it. so easy. Yeah, yeah. Or yeah. you know, like like you, I'm a fantastic presenter, and I've never been scared by it. I actually love being on stage. Right. But I didn't. I didn't realize that most other people hate it. Hate it,
0: yeah. Well, it's right. Public speaking and is so, like behind spiders as like the like one of the top fears, right?
1: Exactly, right. And so it takes an outsider, yes. often to yes. reflect to us how we are seen and and what those superpowers are because yeah. we may not recognize them. Yeah. And the other side of that that I love is that sometimes uh, high performers. Are both told to and feel like they need to focus on what they're bad at. Yes. Right. How do I improve my areas of improvement? Yes. And and consulting is up there in terms of how they give feedback and how you're evaluated and how you get promoted. It's like here's the scorecard. You haven't mastered these three skills, so we're going to give you another project until you get good at those. And what I what I dislike about that. Is that there's a great story in the book of a woman who who ended up working with a professional coach on this, and he said, "Look, being forgettably well-rounded does not help you in the workplace. Like, well-roundedness is for school. You yeah. want to be memorably well lopsided. <laughs> so find the thing that yeah. you spike at yes. compared to other people, yeah. and go like run a thousand miles an hour at mm-hmm. that thing." Yeah. Rather than trying to become mediocrely decent at a bunch of things, yeah, and I I just love that mindset because I think MBAs, especially general management MBAs, right? Like right. you you kind of go down this path of being a generalist and a more of a generalist, and then you're a general manager, and you're still. A, and th- yeah. there comes a point yeah. where you're like, what am I actually good at? Right? Like,
0: <laughs> yes, yes. Where,
1: where what do I have to offer the world? Yeah. And so being keeping your eyes open to and and hearing that feedback. From others of like, where do I spike and how could I look for other opportunities either with or or outside my job within my portfolio to put that to use and to start, start letting that be the cornerstone of my identity rather than a job title or an industry or whatever path I think I'm on.
0: I want to bring this back to the audience for a second. So as I mentioned to you before, the, a lot of the folks who listen to this podcast are either aspiring MBA students or current MBA students. And mm-hmm. as you well know, because you work with them mm-hmm. uh, in business school, most people are focused on that short-term career outcome or goal, right? <laughs> They've invested a ton of money. They want to you know, get into that career that they want or start that mm-hmm. business or do whatever it is. And then that's really, really critical and important, right? But mm-hmm. I would love for you to maybe think and, and wax or riff with me around how can... MBAs really think about the portfolio career within the context of acknowledging that, yes, we all have loans to pay, or many of us will have <laughs> loans to pay, and it's important to get get whatever that goal like is, but also to think about how they might be able to incorporate the elements of the portfolio life into their own strategic thinking about their longer-term career development.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I I think you and I were were laughing over this before we started. And there's some research somewhere that says like your first job out of your MBA you're going to be in for less than two years, but no one can seem to find it. So take that maybe as more of an anecdote than than research. But your first gig out is like not nearly the end all be all that it feels like when you're in business school, and and. I think that's really reassuring. Some people are stressed out by this information, but I think it's reassuring because this notion of how can you think about your life in seasons? And what do you need? What do you want for this season of your life? And then construct your portfolio around that. So for example, many people who are in MBA programs full-time are in their late 20s, maybe early 30s, They might be pre-family. Most of them are, at least at HBS. They might be even pre-partner. I was. I was single when I was a student. And so it's a great time to be really selfish about working your butt off (laughs) and getting a lot of experiences, building a lot of great relationships, and being super focused on your career. And And that doesn't mean you have to do that for the rest of your life. It can just be like, this is what I'm focusing on right now. And it's okay to have a bit of that laser focus, acknowledging that I am going to rebalance that portfolio when I hit a different stage. So I see this particularly with a number of my students that are my female students who are interested in startups. And they they feel like, you know, I want to go all in on this startup right now because I also want children. And there's a bit of a a, a time scale. so when I have to start thinking about children. And so you know, do I do the startup now and then do the kid or do I do the kids and then do the startup later? and and there's absolutely some some you know trade-offs and a bit of a strategic dance there. but but you can think about what is the season I'm going into and what is that mix of paid, unpaid, professional development, relationship, hobbies, rest, health. (laughs) This is all part of your portfolio. How do I think about the mix that makes sense for this season? And how do I know when I'm ready for the next season? What am I looking for? What is that next step that says let's rebalance? So that's sort of the, the big thing that I want to maybe get across, you're going to have so many lives ahead of you. Like all of us will. The world is so different than it was for our parents, our grandparents. There's no such thing, even for the most, you know, straightforward MBA who says, I'm going to go make partner at an MBB. And you're like, okay, sure, maybe. And that path forward is probably going to look very different than it did 20 years ago. Right? So, so even for the most obvious path, the world is being materially disruptive every like five to seven years right now. So that flexibility and that, that seasonality of this is going to be so much more relevant to us than it ever was before. But I think related to that, I just really want to encourage you to, to see yourself beyond being a leader of the future, right? Like I I love the ambition that I see in my students and I love you know, the impact that all of them are going to have on the world. But as I say to, to them on the last day of class, the world doesn't need more miserable billionaires. It doesn't even need miserable millionaires, right? Like some of the best impact you can have circling back to our conversation about clay at the beginning is to be a happy, well-adjusted human being who understands that the people who work for you are also three-dimensional humans and the more that you can see your, your own life through a portfolio, the more you're able to and and can encourage your team yeah. to have portfolios and to be whole, happy, rested yeah. humans. Well,
0: Christina, I have loved this conversation so much. It's been so great <laughs> chatting and riffing with you. And I uh, love that I'm gonna be able to get to share it with the audience. If people want to learn more about your upcoming book, or uh, learn more about what you're up to, where can they go and where can they find you?
1: Sure, so the easiest place is my website, ChristinaWallace.com, or you can check out the book, PortfolioLife.com. I would say you could find me on Twitter and Instagram, but I'm quickly learning that you should make no promises about social media anymore. So currently I'm CM Walla on the interwebs. We'll see how long those platforms still exist.
0: (laughs) Hi everyone.